As I record this, much of the world is in quarantine. Our creative spirits cannot be locked up, however, and I'm witnessing so much that is wonderful. Humanity prevails, and there's good all around us. People are spending time with their families. They're cooking, gardening, playing games, exercising, laughing, playing music, singing. As difficult as these times are, there's a cultural and social shift happening that will change the way we live forever. You're tuned in to OWC Radio, and before we begin, I wanted to take a moment and give you some background on why I chose this next guest. Thanks to our sponsor, OWC, we talk each week and celebrate the creative consciousness. This week we're doing the same, but in a slightly different way. The best-selling novelist and writer, John Moore, does not consider himself to be conversant in what you and I might call high-tech. Since we're all storytellers, however, I wanted to bring John on to talk about his journey. It's been a long and difficult one, but it's a triumphant one. We can all learn from this and be inspired by it. I hope you will find it enlightening. So on that note, let's listen in to my conversation with John. It's time for OWC Radio, Tech Talk with Creatives, Conversations with host Serena Catania. This is Serena Catania with OWC Radio, John Moore, a recent inductee into the Montana Cowboy Hall of Fame, a novelist, a rancher, third generation cattle rancher, by the way, a poet, an excellent photographer, and a minister is on the line with me. And John, how are you? I'm good, Serena. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great. I'm looking over there at my bookcase, and I have several of your books. For those of you who don't know, some of John's novels include The Breaking of Ezra Riley, The Land of Empty Houses, Looking for Lynn, Bitter Roots, Limits of Mercy, Leaving the Land, and Take the Reins. And those are the ones that are on my bookshelf. Well, good. <laughs> Glad to hear it. Yeah. Now, John, you're, you're very... Um, humble, quiet person. Um, but I, I do want you to share your life with us, if you don't mind, because I think you're an amazing example of somebody who has been through the ups and downs and come out the other end and is doing some good in the world. Personally, I'm interested in your story and have been for a long time because I've spent a lot of time in rural America with ranchers and farmers and people who I call the heartland of our country. And you are definitely one of those. So can can you tell the people listening where you were born and what life was like for you when you were growing up? Well, I was born here in Miles City, Montana, 1952. I live in Prairie and Badlands, which has its own beauty and is much more sparsely populated and western Montana is true cowboy country. In Lonesome Dove, Mile City was the fictional setting for the death of Gus McRae. So we're a historical cow town. I grew up on a cattle ranch, and I guess the unique part of that was that my father had a small ranch, and he was in business with his brothers, who were all bachelors. So... Uh, I grew up next to uh, five bachelor uncles, uh, as well as, you know, my own family. And my father, and I'm actually pretty proud of this. Uh, I, I wear it as a certain badge of distinction that he only went through the fifth grade. And he was born in 1909. He was in his mid-40s by the time I came along. And back then... Uh, you know, when times were tough, and, you know, I've done a lot of writing on Western history, and from, you know, up until about the 1940s, it was not uncommon for a child to leave school early and go to work to help support the family or simply to, to uh, support himself, and my father left after the fifth grade and went to work for a large horse operation as the uh, horse wrangler, and, uh, Pretty much then, he, his whole life revolved around horses, and he was one of the only men, I'm told, to ride the duration 
of the time that the CBCs were in existence, and that was at that time the largest horse operation probably in the world. They ran about 63,000 head, and it was a very wild, uh, uh, tough time. Uh, I mean, the CBCs were the toughest of the tough. So my parents lost one child early, a son, and uh, my father desperately wanted another. And he ended up having four girls and me. <laughs> and I, I, I kind of had a certain cross to bear, you know, because of that. <laughs> but I think it makes you a better husband to Deborah, right? Well, okay. it does. Anyway, it wasn't a, an easy time. And, of course, the, the dirty 30s, the depression mm-hmm. and everything was so severe. The drought was so severe. And my father grew up in that. And part of that makes up my novel, The Breaking of Ezra Riley, my mm-hmm. first novel. Mm-hmm. But anyway, at the age of uh, 17, I was helping the family gather cattle one day when my mother came with lunch and said the local newspaper had called. And I was offered a job as a full-time photographer and uh, reporter. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't even a high school senior yet. And I worked there for three years under just some great tutelage, old-school, on-the-job training. When I was 19, I was offered a position. I was offered a job with the Denver Post, and I turned it down. I just did not see myself going into a big city and just going that route. And so instead, you know, this was the hippie era, and I I hitchhiked uh, 12,000 miles altogether. Uh, throughout the United States and Canada and um, just put myself out there and had a multitude of adventures and misadventures. And But that was really my education. So by the, by the time I seriously looked at college, I'd already had three years in a newsroom and 12,000 miles of hitchhiking. And I walked into a dormitory and looked around and thought, there is no way in the world. I did go to school for a while to a a prestigious experimental college back when you uh, you contracted for grades and you contracted for your class and uh, I mean everything was you know kind of anti-establishment. The faculty was excellent. It was just one of those real kind of hippy dippy kind of things, you know. That uh, I went for a while and then uh, was was married by then and and then came actually just kind of fell into uh, a bad period of time as a writer, as a journalist, because I applied for a job in a newspaper in Nevada, and I stopped in to meet the editor, and he looked at my resume, and he says, man, he says, you're plenty qualified, but while you've been out on the road, Watergate has happened. Mm -hmm. He says, now all these radicals that didn't know what they wanted to do, you know, they've suddenly decided they want to be Woodard and Bernstein, and they have flooded the J schools. He says, I've got, I've got job applications just piling up from recent grads of journalism schools. So eventually, I, was, I tell people I was drafted by poverty into the Air Force. Uh, but uh, I had a feeling that my father was going to pass away. I was living in Albuquerque then, and uh, I thought I need to get closer to the ranch. So I took a guaranteed base to Melmstrom Air Force Base, which is Great Falls, Montana. And in my part, you know, I worked part-time for the Great Falls paper. And I really pioneered true journalism coverage of rodeo because rodeo had never really been covered like a sport. It was more like a little cultural event covered by people who knew nothing about cowboys or horses. And then my father did pass away. And... Uh, I ended up getting a hardship discharge and returning to the ranch in uh, 1979. And I've been here for for 40 years, and I've always written. I mean, I just never quit. I've had lulls. Uh, I published a book of poetry, self-published it, you know, back in uh, 73, I think it was. Uh, I did a history of a bucking horse sale in 82, and then I had a real powerful epiphany in a little Cracker Jack box uh, movie theater in Billings, Montana. My wife and I were watching uh, Virginia Stem Rawlings' uh, Cross Creek 
movie. And at one point, the famous editor, Maxwell Perkins, comes to see Rawlings, you know, there in the Florida uh, marsh, and, and tells her that uh, the Gothic novels he, she is sending him are not worth reading, but the letters that she's writing about the people and where she's living uh, are just exquisite. And she needs to write what she knows. And when that actor spoke those words, all I can say is, God came on me. Mm-hmm. And so I was commissioned to write. And I started my first novel, and I really didn't know what I was doing. I hired a professional editor, and I got about 120 pages into it. And then I switched more into my own story. And all of a sudden, you know, she calls me and says, man, she says, now you're writing literature. And so I scrapped, you know, the first 120-some pages. And uh, she tried her hardest, and I had 30 rejections from the major publishing houses in the United States. And I had been published in the Reader's Digest. One day, uh, one of the editors there gave the manuscript to a woman visiting his office. And... Lion UK, the, the British publishing company, was opening an office in the United States, and they contracted me to, to publish it. They wanted me to add 50,000 words, which I did in a unheated, basically unheated old bunkhouse on a K-Pro computer, hmm. and managed to get it done, and, uh, you know, it won some awards, and got some notice, and Really, what happened was then I started getting published by Christian publishing houses. At that time, writing about the West, it was real popular to tear down. Mm-hmm. You know, writers moving to Montana to, you know, advertise themselves as Montana writers. You know, and they just live here for a short time and maybe work on a ranch for a couple of months and then write a book about it. Or, You know, I mean, it was just real trendy to be a Montana writer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I was the real thing. And I don't think the secular publishing houses in New York, as much as they liked my work, uh, they just weren't ready for for the real thing. You know, they wanted kind of an urbane look at life in Montana. And then the Christian publishing houses, I was too realistic. And... They weren't used to that, uh, let alone literary, because I wasn't just your typical commercial writer. Uh, so I, you know, I, I ended up in that market there in a period of time of just doing a number of books, and also doing an article for New York Times magazine that was syndicated and went worldwide and appeared in two editions of a college textbook on prose. And at the same time, just never really, you know, finding attraction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, then ranch situations and other, you know, just life took me out of uh, publishing for a little while. And then when I came back, I found it really difficult. Uh, people forget about you quickly. Technology changes very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so I concentrated on magazine work for a while, and magazines started dying one after the other. And But I've just never quit, whether it was columns or then more recently, you know, online. Um, you know, I've written, I've published six novels, several nonfiction books, and I don't know how many newspaper and magazine articles, probably, you know, well over, you know, maybe 1,500, I don't know. And through it all, I guess what I've tried to do is stay authentic and never sell out. You know, I'm I'm noted for I'm noted for realism, and at at this point, I'm I'm not going to change that. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today too is to try to help all the creatives out there, me including. Sometimes you you just have moments where you wonder what path you're really on and why you're doing it, and then the force be with you, right? It all comes back and you just keep going. And and that's what you've always done. You've just kept going. And it's hard when you have someone telling you no, when you know that this is what you want to do and you know how you want to do it, but you have to make a living. 
And so how do you how do you handle those moments? What what goes into your head? What goes into your mind when somebody says no, and you know, they're wrong, (laughs) or maybe not they're wrong, (laughs) but you feel like they're wrong, right? I mean, what what do you think about? Well, uh, you really get, you know, in my case, I get down to where there's nothing left but my faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel ground down to dust. And, uh, you know, you can scream at God all you want to in those times. But you just have to feel that you are called to write. You're happiest when you're writing. And you have a vision. And the main thing is you're not going to compromise the vision. Uh, if I die without being well-known or, uh, you know, reaching some of my goals or whatever, then so be it. But I'm not going to sell out. And I've had the opportunities. Uh, I've certainly had the opportunities. And I'm just not going to do it because a man is no better than his reputation Mm -hmm. as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, your proven character of who you really are. And I have an advantage over a lot of writers and over a lot of people and that I truly live a sense of place. Some writers have a gift for writing about a sense of place, but more and more in this mobile society, almost no one lives where they were raised. Uh, I've certainly had my share of adversity locally, you know, because of my goals, you know, and some of my, my aspirations. But at the same time, you get that local support as long as you're authentic and you're representing the people fairly. Uh, And I think that's what I've disliked about so many writers who deal with the West and they move in here from somewhere else. You know, they write down to the people. You know, they consider them all, you know, just hicks and clods and, you know, stupid. Uh, And they try and portray themselves, you know, working on a ranch for, you know, a summer, and all of a sudden they're cowboys. Yeah. Well, I was born and bred into it, and I... You know, totally rejected it for a while and then found that it's in my blood, you know, and I'm just happy as horseback. And for me, like it or not, I'm a bit of a spokesman for the rural community. Uh, I didn't set out to be that, but it sort of evolved. You know, just having to deal with the uh, misinformation, uh, dealing with everything that is thrown at you all the time. and another thing to understand, it's just a geographic or demographical fact that you take several Western states, and I can point to Washington, Oregon, and Montana in particular, and each state is basically two states. The Western part is more urban. That's where the universities are, uh, much, much more liberal. And then the Eastern part of the state is much more conservative, and is farming and ranching, and the you know the, and there's basically a civil war going on, culturally, in each state, and you know I've certainly experienced some of that here, and have stayed on my side, <laughs> <laughs> my side of the state, you know, and that's just that's just the way it is, and I've made my choices. I'm more comfortable around small town people and grassroots people, and working ranchers and cowboys and farmers. Well, I think that your books transcend a lot of that too and speak to uh, a deeper level of humanity that is common to everyone. So, uh, and I'm speaking as somebody who lives in a city. I mean, I'm in San Diego, so I can't say I'm not a cowboy. I appreciate what ranchers and farmers do for us very, very much. but but I, I love your books, and I can resonate with your books on a very deep human level. And uh, I want my children to read them, and their children's children to read them. I'm glad that they're there. Let's tell people a little bit about The Breaking of Ezra Riley, because that's the one, it won several awards. It, it really got you started as a writer, right? I mean, that was the one that kind of cracked the egg for you. Well, it did, and... In a way, you know, this isn't too uncommon with writers that sometimes your first book is your best. And, you know, I, I don't let myself fall into that mindset because I'm working on my seventh novel right now and the fifth in an Ezra Riley series. So I don't, 
you know, I don't want to be thinking that I can't outdo the first one. But certainly it touched a, a nerve that uh, no book probably had, uh, certainly not in recent times. Probably just Montana Magazine reviewed it and, and, and just used the phrase deep and pervasive honesty. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you know, kind of shook up so many so many reviewers and readers was um, that, you know, it's just so real, you know, so honest. And they're, you, they, they've been used to so long that anything with a cowboy and a horse in it, uh, you know, had to be romantic. It had to be sentimental. You know, it had to be heroic and an action figure type of, of uh, mentality. And, you know, Ezra Riley isn't. It's deep and it's literary. Um, and I think it touches everybody. And I, I, it's, you know, it's good that you bring up this point. You don't have to be a, you know, a rancher or real rural person to, to read it. You just have to know uh, life, life's deeper meanings and life's challenges. And I think just that sense of growing up, I mean, it is mm-hmm. a coming of age novel in its, in its own way, but in a almost more of a deeply spiritual way of, 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 uh, I think we all make that choice as we hit adversity that we can choose bitterness or we can choose kind of a a fruitful brokenness. And that's a lot of the lesson of Ezra Riley was just to reach the end of himself. And uh, he certainly had reasons for bitterness and, you know, he had a a lot stacked against him and uh, he just finally, you know, uh, you know, towards the end, and I won't give away the ending. I, I really feel the ending is one of the most beautifully symbolic endings, you know, anybody will read. And I don't mean to brag when I say that, because I feel like it was a gift to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gave myself a deadline. You know, being a journalist, I'm used to deadlines. And so I gave myself a deadline. And with two weeks to go, I had no idea how the book was going to end. Oh, my goodness. And, yeah. And I thought, here I am, down to the last chapter, and I don't have a clue. And I just feel grace descended and gave me, you know, the very appropriate ending. I think that most creative people would agree with you that that kind of creativity is really a gift from a much larger place. And um, it, it helps us in times when we're stuck. Uh, I, I loved Breaking of Ezra Riley, and I, I think it, it resonated with me because it's it's the story of a young man searching for the meaning of his life. Really, could you truly could you say that? Is that accurate? Oh yeah, yeah. You know, uh, kind of in rebellion uh, against his life and searching for it. And um, you know, I'm I'm the type of person and writer that my main concern is I want to touch lives. I don't want just to sell books and have them thrown away. I want to write books you'll pass on to your children and grandchildren, as you said earlier. But I want to touch lives. And I've had a lot of letters through the years from people just thanking me for that book. And I know of two, there may be more, but I know of two firstborn sons that were named Ezra because of that book. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's, you know, what, what do you compare that to? You know, um, you know, making a lot of money or something or getting famous is one thing, but knowing that you touch somebody's life so deeply that when their first son was born, they named him Ezra. And, um, I do know, you know, of two of those, two of those young men that are out there today. That's a wonderful feeling. I had a cat named after me. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to Loosening the Reins, that has a unique story because originally it was Letters to Jess and I was under contract to Macmillan. So here I am about 1988. You know, I'm 36 years old. I'm in a terrible drought. It's the year I was published in the New York Times Magazine for a drought piece. And I get a contract with Macmillan and I believe they were about the 12th largest publisher in the world at that time. And then uh, my editor gets fired. So Macmillan notifies me they're canceling my contract. 
And legally, they had no grounds for it. But they also told me they had a larger legal staff <laughs> than I did. Uh. And they demanded the first half of the advance. The advance was only $2,000, I think. And they, they, had, they had fronted me 1000 or something, and they wanted that back. Oh, my goodness. Well, so I caved in. Well, my, uh, my former editor uh, was picked up by a very popular Christian uh, writer at the time, Father Joseph Gerzon, and they formed their own little publishing company, and they brought out letters to Jess. Unfortunately, it was filled with typos. They brought it out hardcover, beautiful, just beautiful. Everything about it was first class except some of the books had missing, you know, had blank pages. And I, I know in one book, I, I counted over 200 typos. I mean, it was just a mess. Well, after that, um, somehow I got it to Zondervan, which was about the second largest Christian house. And they released it and came out as Loosening the Reins. But before they could promote it, is when they got taken over by Rupert Murdoch, and they were just in a turmoil. And so it slipped between the cracks. And then when I was at Thomas Nelson, America's largest Christian publishing house, and I was there probably the longest, they kind of found it. And they brought it out in hardcover as Take the Reins. And um, so that book ha has had three different you know, lifetimes. Um, but it's 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 a nonfiction kind of prairie parables, and kind of falls into the type of nonfiction writing that I'm probably the best at, which is short, insightful little stories. Mm -hmm. Well, I I like the father son, the father teaching his son. In our society today, the families are all falling apart, and I think we need mothers and fathers to be, to, to you know to to teach their children more than perhaps this current generation is doing. Um, so I, I really like that part of it. The, the version that I have is Take the Reins. So um, it's, okay. it, it's hard to find some of your books. Uh, they're, they're sold out, and they're becoming collector's editions, some of them now. Yes, they are. So uh, just to, uh, an aside here on the, technic, the technical aspects of this, because, you know, we like to talk <laughs> tech. You, you um, self-published originally the breaking of Ezra Riley, and that was in the days where you literally had to, to get, you typed it up, and how did you do that? You typed it up, and you copied it, and you had the copies printed with a cover, and you had to pay for all the copies ahead of time and then mm -hmm. hope that somebody bought them, right? Yeah, I went through a commercial you know, printer in Montana, Falcon Press, which also kind of a subsidy type. They didn't do mine subsidy, but they did other books too. I did it to really have more like a bound manuscript, you know, to send to publishers. Mm -hmm. Also, I did it just to be creative. I had a friend illustrate it. Uh, and uh, the, the local community, you know, was so supportive. Even with that self-published version, when I first held a book signing, I can't remember how many hundreds of books I signed and sold, but I know my my hands were cramping. Hmm. Uh, I just couldn't hardly sign any. I mean, people were lined up for quite some distance. Uh, so I had, you know, just so, so much support. And I did that largely, like I say, to have something in my hands, be, you know, just besides at that time, you know, typewritten pages. But to be honest... You know, and I told a couple of friends the other day, you know, I, I looked at your previous guests and I thought, you know, what am I doing? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> this, what am I doing on OWC? <laughs> I mean, I, they, they want to see a real technosaur, you know, a, a dinosaur from the past, a caveman, because, um, you know, for a 67-year-old cowboy, I'm probably a little bit ahead of the curve technologically, which puts me on about the... You know, like the average second grader is probably about where I'm at. Oh, I and think you need honest, to give yourself more credit. You published oh, an e-book. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but technology has been my hardest, hardest part of writing for about the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm just now, because of a, you know, a popular software app, uh, kind of 
mastered it and, and getting you know, to where the novel I'm working on at least seems approachable. But there for a long time, I was so dissatisfied with some of the word processing softwares. Mm-hmm. They would advertise them as being simple and designed for the writer. And then, you know, you'd buy them and golly, they had so many bells and whistles. Yeah. That, you know, everything's too complicated and they have to change things that don't need changing, you know, constantly. Too many middle managers. Yep. Uh, just, you know. Well, let me answer that question, though. I'm going to tell you one of the other reasons I wanted you on. OWC Radio, and I have to thank Larry O'Connor and everybody at Otherworld Computing for sponsoring this podcast because it it does, and I say this, if you listen to my shows, you've you've heard me tell several people, it gives me the chance to, to meet and to celebrate and to share a moment with people who are incredibly inspirational. And I think no matter how much technology rules our lives, it's still all about the story. It's all about the creativity that drives all of that. And when I talk to people who code uh, these complicated, technological, innovative products, there's creativity in there. I mean, you might be sitting at your computer writing code, but you are creating, and you are creating using, using the word, using the written word, the spoken word. But I think that, yeah, you you uh, may not be what you consider to be the highest level of technology, but you're doing what everyone who works in our business, and I say film and television because that's where I spend a lot of my time, but we need that. We need stories that inspire. We need stories that tell us that it's beyond the technology, that the stories are more important. And so what you do is the foundation for what everybody else wants to do and can do if they have the courage to do it. And, and in your case, um, you know, I think you're writing about the heartbeat of our country and, and you, you bring issues to light that everyone has, you know, the father-son relationships, the relationships with the land, the relationships with our spouses and with our children, and and the, the ups and downs of surviving hardship. You know, not everybody has to survive fires and, and major snowstorms. I mean, we became friends on Facebook through other mutual friends, and that's how we got to know each other. And I watched you through that terrible winter that you had in Montana, where it was almost impossible to get food to the cattle. And that's not easy. And I think a lot of people don't know about that. So no, don't ever apologize for not being technological enough, because there's other people that can do that. Well, that's what I need. I mean, you know, my last book, Looking for Lynn, which I really, I really think, you know, is an outstanding book. I put a lot into it. I worked on it when I'd been in what we call a horse wreck. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, uh, there's getting bucked off and then there's what's called a wreck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was in two horse wrecks, 10 minutes apart because I was too stubborn, you know, had to get back on and my shoulder was pretty badly tore up and I could hardly move my right arm. And yet I finished that novel using my left arm to help my right arm you know, not only type, but, you know, move the cursor mm-hmm. and everything. And then when I went to thinking of getting it published, and I thought about having to deal with editors and publishers and agents again, I just literally, I, I, I just had such a terrible series of remembrances of all the bad experiences I've had with editors, publishers, and agents. You know, and some of it was just bad luck. And I thought, I just can't go through that. You know, I'm just going to self-publish this and trust God to do something with it, you know. And and so I, I went through that process, but I've been almost like starting all over again. I mean, it might as well be, you know, 1982 or something all over again. And when I sit down to work on this seventh novel, you know, there's there's part of it's just an act of faith. And part of it is I write because I'm a writer. And if I'm not writing, I'm just going to fall into despair. You know, I'm just going to fall into self-pity and depression and, you know, torment myself and beat myself half to death. And 
And then you have to stop and say, okay, I'm going to write because I'm a writer. And I'm not going to worry about whether or not anybody will ever publish it or read it. Or I'm just going to do the best job I can do for my own self-respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what I'm doing now. And I'm returning to you know, this novel. And it has probably, you know, it has quite the plot, quite the theme. You know, it will be a little less literary, certainly, than The Breaking of Ezra Riley. But uh, I'm, I'm back at it simply because that's who I am and because I have a wife who's very supportive, and she married a writer. And she doesn't care, you know, she doesn't care if I'm a famous writer or not. But she... Uh, She's just always been hugely supportive, and she's happy when I'm writing, and I'm happy when I'm writing. (laughs) You brought up earlier, and we probably should touch on it briefly, the recent induction into the Montana Cowboy Hall of Fame. Absolutely. That was wonderful. Congratulations. And Thank you. (laughs) And it it is the uh, the Cowboy Hall of Fame and Western Heritage. And I went in certainly on the Western heritage end of things as a writer, uh, as a novelist, you know, journalist, photographer. And, of course, being in eastern Montana, you know, you kind of had to be a a cowboy, too, or or you weren't going to get voted in. The other writers, just pure writers that are in it, include A.B. Guthrie, Jr., Hmm. Norman McLean and Dorothy Johnson. And most people are familiar with all three. Dorothy Johnson's a little bit older, but she wrote A Man Called Horse and numerous other you know, well-known known books. Uh, A.B. Guthrie Jr., of course, was a Pulitzer Prize winner. And um, Norman McLean wrote, of course, A River Runs Through It. And they were more on the western Montana end of things. And and so for me, out of coming out of eastern Montana, I very likely, I think I am, the first pure writer come ever going into the hall out of eastern Montana. Uh, Stan Line, a late friend of mine, is in there, but he Stan was best known as a cartoonist. He did the Ricochet mm-hmm. cartoons for you know years ago. Uh, he did a few novels later in his life, but uh, you know he's not he wasn't known as a novelist. And I went in because of my my novels and my books, uh, but also the articles through the years. You know, as a lifetime achievement award kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And largely, what brought it all to attention to people, probably more than anything, was my writer Facebook page. And I was late coming to Facebook. I only came to Facebook to see photographs of my friends and family because you couldn't see them anywhere else. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the the writer page just kind of fell into place after a period of time and became very popular. And it's almost reached its end because I don't have much further I can really go with it uh, because all the stories that I do largely are really grassroots, area history, giving honor and respect to people and events and horses that that are often overlooked, and I, you know, there certainly there's no end to that. But if I want to write a novel, I'll have to put you know somewhat of an end to it, or maybe just on hold for a little while. Don't end yeah. it. It's wonderful. <laughs> I mean, there's things all over your page that I love. I mean, I love the picture of your father, you you standing next to your father when you're talking about when you learned how to tie a tie. <laughs> yeah, you know. Oh, there, there's gems. Uh, there are things about history on my writer page that you won't find anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, because, uh, you know, it's so much. I don't ever, I've never been interested in the things that everybody writes about, like the Civil War or Battle of the Little Bighorn, you know, things like that. I figure all of that's been handled by experts. There's not much more to really dig out. So I've always concentrated more on particularly the history of horses on the northern Great Plains and uh, cowboy history that's that's not as widely known and try to treat people with respect 
and and show the character of lives that were developed in adversity. Because, like you say, mm-hmm. we have some very harsh weather up here. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, forty. We can have forty below in the winter and one hundred and ten in the summer. I mean, you just don't know, and you've got to be a little bit determined to live here, and you have to. Uh, Forestall gratification, I guess, would be would be the term to use because I live in what's called next year country. Uh, you always keep thinking next year will be better. Yeah. Next year it'll you know next year it'll rain. Next year the cattle markets will come up. You know next year will be better, and you keep just working in faith and hope. Yeah. Well, I really believe that what you're doing, not just with your novels, but with, for example, the Facebook page and things like that, as I traveled through the country and going to very rural areas, it became very clear to me that there is a whole side to our country where there are no stories about these people. And, and you know, the storytellers are the keepers of history. And if the storytellers don't tell those stories, they're just going to go by the wayside. And I I found that sometimes it's a, one of the ranching associations that publishes a book, like I have one from Burns, Oregon, that has all of the ranchers and pictures of them, and it talks about the history of their family. You're not going to find that in mainstream publications. Or maybe it's the ladies' auxiliary in a small town in the middle of Wyoming or in the middle of Idaho that, you know, they all got together and they published a combination of family stories and recipes. But that's history. And, And I have a love of that, and I think a lot of people do. But if you don't hear about it, you don't know about it. So I think... One thing the, the the rural West has that people ache for, I think, and don't know it, is community. Mm-hmm. Uh, ranchers and cowboys, you know, we're thought of as rugged individualists. Uh, and on a certain level, we are. But one reason I like to stay in the rural parts of eastern Montana is because there's such a strong sense of community. Everybody knows everybody else. And if there's a need, a medical need, for example, somebody starts a fundraiser. And it's not an, an anonymous, you know, GoFundMe type of campaign. I mean, there's a dance that's held and perhaps an auction with things, you know, auctioned off. And, and I mean, it's very much personal involvement. Absolutely. And, and I, that's what I really treasure about rural America uh, and it's just sad that, you know, I've dealt with uh, big city press, you know, as a result of being a, you know, a writer and everything. I've had opportunities to deal with, with other writers and journalists and, 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 you know, from the Eastern Seaboard and from California and everything. And the odd part is they all come with a, a certain amount of expectation, which dies quickly, you know, because they were not prepared you know, mm-hmm. properly. They, mm-hmm. they were expecting something. I don't know what they're expecting, but but they just never been. One woman that came told me she'd been to Russia 12 times, but she had never been in a small rural town in America in her life, <laughs> in her entire life. And she was just blown away by friendliness. She could not understand why people downtown were so friendly. You know, she was just suspicious. And uh, another recent filmmaker that was here, you know, I saw some of the same, you know, things from her was, was she was always a little bit on edge because she was used to that kind of aggressive New York City mentality. And, and she, you know, you just learn to kind of relax and realize people, people here are friendly and hospitable and respectful. There's a quote in the prologue to your book, Looking for Lynn. Mm -hmm. It says, behind every beautiful thing, there is some kind of pain. And that's a quote from Bob Dylan. And Mm -hmm. I was talking recently with Michael Williams, who they call the godfather of comedy, about how the best comedy comes from hardship. So there's something to ponder in there for people 
and and you were mentioning it to me in one of our earlier conversations, not online, but that we have to think of adversity as in some ways a gift. Can you address that for everyone? Well, I think we all try to live a life that's pleasant and comfortable. And we want even more so for our children and grandchildren to have lives that are pleasant and comfortable. But when we really look at life honestly, that's not where character is developed or where character is revealed. Uh, it's, you know, you can use all kinds of metaphors and similes and to describe it. I mean, it's a little bit like weight training, you know, resistance training of any sort uh, for muscles to grow. You know, there's no pain, no gain, any of that. But really, I think at the core of it is it's life. Mm-hmm. And we can't have any false expectations that somehow we're entitled to have this pain-free, wonderful life. And if somehow we don't, then we're being, you know, shortchanged. And a lot of what I learned in my life, I learned, you know, at the foot of cowboys growing up, good mm-hmm. and bad. Mm-hmm. But a lot of it I learned on the road hitchhiking. I mean, when you hitchhike around the country for 12,000 miles and you've had knives at your throat and guns at your chest and outrun street gangs and, you know, slept in hobo jungles and everything that I did and see really the, the best and the worst, you know, of people, I found out that even with some of the most downtrodden people, you know, it may be alcoholics on the street, you would find those that were of of character. And, uh, you know, maybe they'd had a lot of bad luck, maybe they'd made some very poor decisions, mm-hmm. but they'd retained a sense of dignity and a sense of character. Mm-hmm. And then you might meet some spoiled 18-year-old kid on a beach in California. And he thinks he's entitled to everything. You know, he's special. You know, and it wasn't, you know, I don't mean to single out the beaches of California, but it was, you know, any place you could run into people that did not place character as a value. They were after things. They were after status, you know, and, and, Character was not a pursuit, and a character does not come easily. And if it did, it wouldn't have the value that it that it has. And we, I think we've we've made you know you and I both we grew up during those 1960s mm-hmm. of rebellion, where everything was the anti-establishment and the anti-hero. And even in my hippie days. I, I had a certain sense of, you know, cowboy respect about me. I would never dis a, you know, I would never like spit on a returning veteran from Vietnam or anything like that. I mean, that just angered me, you know, and I was around the kind of hippies and stuff who did. And I thought, man, you know, you won't get away with that for long. You know, you, you think you're pretty privileged and morally superior, but life will even even the score here eventually and that's what life does you know in time it just evens the score so i think we need to accept adversity without i don't seek it (laughs) you know (laughs) i don't want any more adversity in my life but if it comes it comes and we just you know in my case I've been happily married for 45 years, and I have a very strong partner, uh, a woman of principle. And, you know, we've been through so much that I, don't, I, I just don't really fear too much more at this point. If life were perfect, it would be really boring. Um, so, you know, maybe there's a little bit of that, too. But um. Your first book was self-published. It was literally printed, what I would say, the old-fashioned way, right? But you've gone the you've gone the ebook route as well. So how did you did you use um, Amazon or how did you work on your ebook? Well, I went two routes. Uh, looking for Lynn was through Amazon through CreateSpace, mm-hmm. and 
then an e-book, green e-books out of Idaho, mm-hmm. uh, picked up the breaking of Ezra Riley and the land of empty houses. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would have done all of my books, but they couldn't format them. They were still on, you know, floppy disks. Hmm. So they only did they only did what they were able to do, and you know, and technology still is, you know, the hardest hardest thing for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, for 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 me, there was that time period when I was working at the Great Falls Tribune, and you know, computers were first coming in, and you know, if I had stayed in journalism at that time and grown with it. Uh, it would have been different, but I returned to ranching and then had to buy a personal computer and had had no real training. You know, you just buy one and read the owner's manual, you know, and that's how I have to do so many things here in eastern Montana because mm-hmm. you just don't have the network around you. Uh, so I, I just have to buy a buy a Macintosh and, you know, trying to find my way through it. Of course, like I mentioned, my first my first computer was a K-Pro. So, uh, all right, down and writing my first novel. <laughs> that does it. I'm coming to the ranch and I'm bringing computers with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I need. We need help, and I'm a step ahead of my wife, and and she's so frustrated. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just so. It, it is such a frustrating world for those of us that are on the outside looking in. Well, you know, I'm, I I guess I've always been called a, a bit of a geek, but I'm also creative. And I can only sit for so many hours in front of a computer. I, I edit too, but I really admire people who edit full time because I can't do it. I can't sit in a dark room. I have to get out into the open space and get some fresh air. And, and so I, I understand. I've never been through a harsh Montana winter where you're trying to trudge through snow and ice to feed your animals. But I, I really admire what you do. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to tell people while I've got you hostage here? <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know really what it would be, uh, except to, uh, you know, just maybe slow down and consider those of us that are in the rural communities. Uh, the ranchers, the farmers, and really, you know, kind of think about it. So often people think that everybody, everybody involved in ranching or farming is some big, you know, corporate farm, corporate ranch, or, you know, welfare ranching, you know, all these terms that get thrown out where almost all farms and ranches in America are family-run operations. And we're corporate only in the sense that we have to be for tax reasons. Right. You know, we we might be a small operation, but, you know, we're incorporated for tax reasons. And like with me, you know, my cattle are out there ranging in the on the prairie and gumbos. I'm a good steward of the land. I love wildlife. Um, you know, we're, we work with nature. Because you can't work against it and, and succeed. Absolutely. Uh, it'll break you eventually. Mm-hmm. I know guys that try, and I have no respect for them, but I know guys that try and hammer creation into their their molding. And it doesn't work. And we, we work with nature, and we have old-fashioned values that I think the nation needs to re- return to. Mm-hmm. And... There's still people out here in the hinterlands where their word is, is, is better than a contract. Mm-hmm. If they look you in the eye, shake your hand, and tell you something, they'll live or die by that. Mm-hmm. There's a sense of loss about that. There's a sense of the loss of straightforwardness and honesty and trustworthiness, and I think that it still exists. We just have to look for it. And I... Uh, I want the people listening here who are, some of them might be wondering now, why are we talking to somebody who, you know, does it the old-fashioned way? And I wanted to talk to you because I think that, like I said, you're telling the stories. I think that everybody that uses technology needs to take a step back and think about what are they creating the technology for? What is the technology living for? 
I had a thought this morning while I was out feeding my cows. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if you ask me what is what my concern, I would say my concern is artificial intelligence. But when I say that, I'm not talking about robotics. Mm-hmm. I am talking about people li- living such a urban life that they are not really interacting with nature. And everything they know is largely artificial. They're still human, all right? They're, you know, they might be great people, but they're surrounded by artifice. They're, they're surrounded by man-made products and creations. And there is so much to learn, not just by being in nature, because we have a phenomenon in America now that sociologists and psychologists are now calling nature deficit disorder. And we certainly have that. Mm -hmm. But we have this larger need to learn common sense from people who are living with nature, not recreating with it, but truly dependent upon it. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, you know, I have friends who work in the technological business. I'm partnered with them in a company called Lumberjack System. And we take sabbaticals, sh- brief sabbaticals, and I know you're going to laugh at us, but we go we go hiking in the hills because Philip Hodgetts and Gregory Clark always say you can't have big ideas in small spaces. Uh, and we really believe that. We believe that we need to get out of our houses and and get into nature, however we can reach it from where we are. And I, I do believe that's important. And And I've been fortunate to have seen parts of this country that very few people have seen. You know, so I encourage everybody to to read your books. Look up John L. Moore. Go on Facebook. Find John L. Moore Writer on Facebook. And that's M-O-O-R-E, Writer. And, you know, you're writing about the heartbeat of our country. You're writing about people with strong, strong, strong souls and courageous hearts. And these are dramatic stories, but they're stories that appeal to all of us and that tell the truth about human nature. Whether you use the best of technology or the beginning of technology, I'm glad you're there and I'm glad you're writing. And I'm fortunate to have had this time to talk to you. So I just want to say thank you. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your heart for, you know, the rural people. And, uh, and I, I truly do respect and admire those who are creative with technology. I'm just afraid that we're entering into what I referred to in one column as uh, technological Darwinianism or Darwinism, uh, where if you're a dinosaur, you might as well die. Hmm. And this is what some of us in the rural community, I am at the very end of cable broadband, our ranches. Everything north of me, you know, doesn't get it. So there, if they, you know, they might have a satellite and they're they're getting their internet that way but i'm at, i'm just lucky mm-hmm. i could still be on dial up you know mm-hmm. and that's where a lot of the the rural west is but sometimes when you have technological problems and you you call for help somewhere you know you will at the, have those times where you encounter people that say well grandpa if you don't know how to fix this you're not worth living anyway you know? <laughs> Uh, you know, there's a little bit of that attitude that's out there that I think is scary. Well, I think people just don't realize it. I mean, I've stayed on a ranch, for example, where we were 35 miles away from the nearest small store, right, mm-hmm. for groceries. And I'm not talking a grocery store. I'm talking like a 7-Eleven right. type of store where the family only had a few megabits per day of yep. Uh, of of uh, internet that they could use, and I, and I had a a four person crew counting me. There were four of us there, and everybody wanted to check their emails. And I told them, I said, warn your families ahead of time that you're not going to be able to get on the internet every day, because it wasn't just that the family could pay more and have more access. It was that after a certain cutoff, they didn't have it at all. I don't know why that is. It just that's just the way it is. So when they're talking now about creating an infrastructure, bringing more technology to rural America, there's a part of me that thinks that's wonderful, and another part of me that wishes it wouldn't happen. Yeah. 
I hate to say it, but I, but I, I, I do. I famously do not own a smartphone. There you go. <laughs> and I don't. And I, I have a track phone that I keep in a vest pocket in case I get bucked off, you know, 10 miles from the house or pickup breaks down or something. And uh, it may or may not be charged, you know, because I never look at it. And when I'm out in the hills, I do not want to hear a phone go off. Simple as that. (laughs) And on that note, I'm going to sign off and say thank you to our guest, one of America's literary treasures, writer John L. Moore. And before I ride off into the sunset, I want to make sure I thank OWC, Otherworld Computing, for sponsoring this podcast and bringing great people to the global conversation. Thanks for listening. And remember what I always tell you, get up off your chair and go do something wonderful today. Be well, be safe, and know that you are loved.